And now, here they are, the Beatles! Hi, I'm Justin Shears, and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser-known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. By mid-March, the Beatles and George Martin could see that the new album's release date of the 1st of June 1967 was rapidly approaching. And yet there was still considerable work left to do to ensure that the all-important deadline was met. Only a handful of the songs recorded to date were actually complete, with a few more needing the finishing touches applied to make them worthy of release. But there were still a few spaces left on the track list yet to be filled. The first of these brand new recordings had its origins in the serendipity of a chance meeting in 1963 and a newspaper article in 1967. Mime time. We've got four girls picked out an audition earlier in the week who are going to mime to a Brenda Leaders. And we have a judge to pick out the best of the four when they've done it. The judge being Mr. Paul McCartney. Good evening. Right, you, you, you're keen on budding Brenda Lees, are you? Oh, yes. I yes. bet you are, yes. Right. Well, let's introduce the four contestants to you. They are from left to right. Judy Johnson. Hello, Judy. June Dartnell. Hi, June. Hello, Kathleen Sullivan. Hi there. And hello to Melanie Coe. Right, they're all set to go, I hope, are you? Ready, Paul? Okay, off we go with Let's Jump the Broomstick. Well, come a little baby, let's jump the broomstick. Come a let's tie a knot. Come a little baby, let's jump the broomstick. Come a let's tie a knot. Father don't like it, a brother don't like it, a sister don't like it, a mother don't like it. Come a little baby, let's jump the broomstick. Come a let's tie a knot. In October 1963, at the very start of Beatlemania, the Beatles appeared on pop music television show Ready Steady Go. Paul had been asked to judge a miming contest, consisting of four teenage girls lip-syncing to Brenda Lee's latest release, Let's Jump the Broomstick. The four contestants were introduced, and as the music started, they did their thing to camera. The lucky winner was announced a few minutes later. A terrific performance from four would be Brenda Lee as well. I wonder if our panel of judges has made up its mind and is unanimous. Oh, yes, it has. It is. It, it has. has. It, yes. yes. Paul, uh, who's it going to be? I think the winner, uh, as far as I'm concerned, number four. Number four, Melanie Coe. Here's a prize, Melanie, the LP from Paul, and all our congratulations. Very well done. Thank you. Paul McCartney came over and shook my hand and gave me a Beatles album, which was the greatest thing that could happen to any little teenage girl or boy. Fast forward to February 1967, and the Beatles were at the beginning of the Sgt Pepper sessions. Just like John's A Day in the Life, Paul saw a newspaper article in the Daily Mail telling the story of a teenage girl from a well-to-do family who had run away from home, something which was becoming increasingly common in swinging 60s Britain. Why can't I just do what I want to do? So I did go home and I just stood in the flat thinking, they're gonna be home soon and there's gonna be another fight and screaming and shouting and throwing things around and I think I'll just leave. 
I literally threw the minimum amount of stuff in a bag. And I went to that bus stop there, and luckily there was a bus. And I did leave a note, yes. But my father had said something strange was happening. She'd never leave home, because she had everything. Well, he was a croupier, but previously, funnily enough, he'd actually worked in the car business. So he was a man from the motor trade, which is the lyric from the song. It's almost telepathic. I had met them for tea, and that had gone very well. So I gave them this address, and they pulled up here. And so I came out, and I was pulled, actually by the hair, I think, into the back of the car. Took me against my will for my love nest. Paul was struck by the emotional and narrative aspects of the story and used it to pen a song for inclusion on the new album. Little did he know, or for that matter the girl in the newspaper story, that Paul and she had previously met. And I thought, oh, just a sad song. Oh, you know, almost wanted to cry. In fact, I, I may have, but no, I hadn't connected it. So I then listened to the words and looked at the words and thought, could it be? Well, yes. Suddenly, it, it, you know, it sort of hit me, but I just felt sad. I just, it's, even now, I, I find it very sad to listen to the song. Sensing the need for a non-conventional backing to his new song, Paul asked producer George Martin to score and arrange a string section for the track, as he had done on Yesterday and Eleanor Rigby on the Beatles' previous two albums. Unfortunately, George Martin was otherwise engaged with another artist at the time and couldn't fit Paul's request into his busy schedule. Paul therefore asked producer and composer Mike Leander, who he had met in 1965 when Marianne Faithfull was recording her cover version of Yesterday, to score the song. Upon hearing this, George Martin was more than a little put out, but ever the professional agreed to conduct the 10-piece orchestra and produce the session using Leander's score.
Take six of She's Leaving Home, recorded in Studio 2 on the 17th of March 1967. Vocals will be added on the 20th, taking into account the limitations of the four-track technology that the Beatles were still being subjected to. George Martin explains. I wanted to get a really good sound out of the orchestra and harp, and so I filled up the whole four tracks of the four-track on just the orchestra. And then I mixed that down to a stereo pair, leaving myself two tracks. Two tracks was hardly enough, really, but it was all I could do with, because the Beatles, that is John and Paul, had to sing this, and I made them sing it together because I wanted a double track, and I only had two tracks, so I had to do that. So they had to be dead accurate within themselves. And, of course, when John's voice was doing the long bit in the background, then we put a little bit more echo on that because they were on different mics. That was, it was the way it was done. It, it was a performance, as well as being a technical achievement. The tempo, all right, Paul? Yes. <clears throat> right, here we go. Mm. You're wasting breath, all of it. Here we go. One, two, three, two, two, three. Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins Silently closing her bedroom door Leaving the note that she hoped would say more She goes downstairs to the kitchen clutching a handkerchief Quietly turning the back door key Stepping outside she is free She We gave her most of our lives Is leaving Sacrificed most of our lives We gave her everything money could buy snores as his wife gets into her dressing gown Picks up the letter that's lying there Standing alone at the top of the stairs She breaks down and cries to her husband Daddy, our baby's gone Why would she treat us so thoughtlessly? How could she do this to me? She We never thought of ourselves is leaving Never a thought for ourselves oh, We struggled hard all our lives to get by. She's leaving home after living alone for so many years Friday 
talk, she is far away Waiting to keep the appointment she made Meeting a man from the motor trade She What did we do that was wrong? Is we didn't know it was wrong Fun is the one thing that money can't buy. Something inside that was always denied For so many years She's leaving An isolation mix of Take 9 of She's Leaving Home. The extra cello notes after each chorus were edited out at the mixing stage after vocals had been recorded and double-tracked by Paul and John. Paul, how often have you taken LSD? About four times. And where did you get it from? Oh, you know, I mean, if I was to say where I got it from, you know, it's illegal and everything, it's silly to say that, you know, so I'd rather not say that. Don't you believe that this was a matter which you should have kept private? Mm, but the thing is, you know, that I was asked a question by a newspaper and the decision was whether to tell a lie or to uh, tell him the truth, you know. I decided to tell him the truth. But I, I really didn't want to say anything, you know, because if I had my decision, uh, you know, if I had it my way, I wouldn't have told anyone, you know, because I'm not trying to spread the word about this. But the man from the newspaper is the man from the mass medium, you know. I'll keep it a personal thing. If he does too, you know, if he keeps it quiet. But he wanted to spread it, so it's his responsibility, you know, for spreading it, not mine. Well, do you think you have now encouraged your fans to take drugs? I don't think it'll make any difference, you know. I don't think my fans are going to take drugs just because I did, you know. But the thing is, that's not the point anyway, you know, I was asked whether I had or not. And then from then on, the whole bit about how far it's going to go and how many people it's going to encourage is up to the newspapers and up to you, you know, on television. I mean, you're spreading this now at this moment. This is going into all the homes, you know, in Britain. And I'd rather it didn't, you know. But you're asking me the question, you want me to be honest, I'll be honest, you know. But as a public figure, surely you've got a responsibility no, it's you've teenagers. got the responsibility. You've got the responsibility not to spread this now. You know, I'm quite prepared to keep it as a very personal thing, if you will too. If you'll shut up about it, I will. The climate was uh, influenced by the psychedelic era, is what you want to call it. I think the only difficulty about talking honestly about that period is that now the drug scene is a much heavier thing. And if you're now in any way seen to incite uh, or advocate drug taking, you're now talking about crack and you're now talking about life-threatening things. So I, I don't actually like doing it because of that. It can easily be misconceived. If you could go back to the period and everyone could understand how the period was and kind of how innocent it was, then it is easier to talk about it. It mightn't have affected creativity to, for other people. I know it did for us and it did for me. I mean, the first thing, I mean, that people who smoked marijuana 
and we're into music is that somehow it focuses your attention better on the music and so you can hear it clearer um or well, that's how it appeared to be um you can see things you know or you could see things much different i mean lsd was something else you know it wasn't just i mean marijuana was just like having a couple of beers really but lsd was like more like going to the moon we found out very early on that uh, you know if you played stoned or or derelict in any way it was really shitty music you know so we would have the experiences and then bring that into the music later it's well documented that by 1967 the beatles were under the influence of various substances on the evening of the 21st of march the Beatles gathered on the floor of Studio 2 for a routine session to add vocals to Getting Better, which should have seen the song completed. But the session didn't quite go to plan. I, I knew that the boys smoked pot, and they, they equally knew that I disapproved. And they never did in front of me. They would always um, have Mel roll them a joint, and they'd nip out into the, into the canteen and lock it, or go into the loo and have a, have a smoke and come back again, beaming all over their faces. Picture yourself in a boat on a river With tangerine trees and marmalade skies Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly I remember him going up on the roof uh, John went up on the roof and got lost and came back I was aware of them smoking pot I wasn't aware that they did anything really serious. Um, in fact, I was so innocent that I actually took John up into the roof when he was having a, an LSD trip, not knowing what it was. I never took it in the studio. Once I did accidentally, I thought it was taking some uppers. And uh, I, I was not in the state of handling it, you know, but I took it and then I just thought, it was so scared on the mic. I said, what was it? You know, I said, I feel ill. I thought I felt ill. And, and it was got, I thought it was going to crack, you know, and then I said, I must get some air, and they all took me upstairs on the roof, and George Martin was looking at me funny, you know. And then it dawned on me, I must have taken acid. So the only place I could take him to get fresh air was on the roof. And we went up there, and it was a wonderful starry night, and he looked up, went to the edge of the 18-inch parapet, and looked up at the stars and said, Isn't, aren't they fantastic? And of course, the, to him, they would have been especially fantastic, I suppose. Um, they would just look stars to me at the time. Needless to say, John's part in the session was over for the evening. But the studio time wasn't completely wasted. Another track was pulled from the tape shelf to be completed, as studio engineer Jeff Emmerich recalls. On uh, Lovely Rita, Rita made, right? They were stuck for the solo. And in fact, I suggested the piano solo, believe it or not, because they were really in a tizwas about what solo to put on it. So then Paul shouted up, because I was at the top of the stairs, and Paul said, oh, you play it, right? So I'm so nervous, you know, in those days. So I said, no, I can't do it. So thinking about it, Although it sounded weird at the time to do the piano solo, it, when you think about it, it was not going to sound right. So what I did, I wanted a shimmer behind the piano to get a sound of a piano that no one had heard again, because these are supposed to be all new sounds. So what I did, I put used an echo chamber on it, which was at the back of number two, 
and we could send the signal of the piano via a tape machine into the echo chamber, which would give some sort of delay. So what I did, I stuck sticky tape on all the guide rollers of the tape machine. So when the tape went through, it was wobbling all over the place, right? Again, if the manager had come in, I probably would have gone fired or got into terrible trouble. So it wobbled the tape going through, through the, 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 the heads, right, of the tape machine and wobbled the echo into, or the piano into the sound into the chamber. And that was like the sound behind the piano. isolation mix of Lovely Rita, highlighting George Martin's honky-tonk piano solo, complete with sticky tape wobble. Two days later, with John back in the studio, the Beatles picked up the vocal overdubs and superimposed bongos for getting better, and another track was now complete.
to be cruel to my woman I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved Man, I was mean, but I'm changing my scene And I'm doing the best that I can Fooey, fooey, I admit, it's getting better Better, a little better All the time I can't get no Yes, I admit, it's getting better Better, it's getting better Since you've been mine In the mood to polish off older tracks, on the 28th of March, the Beatles returned to Good Morning, Good Morning, adding a fresh lead vocal, backing vocals, and a blistering guitar solo, this time played by Paul. Nothing to do to save his life, call his wife and to say, but what a day, how's your boy been? Nothing to do, it's up to you. I've got nothing to say, but it's okay. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Going to work, don't wanna go, feeling low down. Heading for home, you start to roam, then you're in town. Everybody knows there's nothing doing Everything is closed, it's like a ruin Everyone you see is half asleep And you're on your own, you're in the street After a while you start to smile Now you feel cool Then you decide to take a walk By the old school Nothing has changed, it's still the same I've got nothing to say, but it's okay Good morning, good morning Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, everybody. That'll do. Good afternoon. 
an isolation mix of Take 11 of Good Morning, Good Morning. While the Beatles were happy with the results, John wanted something to fill the long outro to the song. George Martin explains. John wanted to finish this song with a collection of animal noises, starting off with a cock, identifying with a Kellogg's commercial, and then each animal was capable of either devouring or frightening the one before it. And we had a whole string of them here. Uh, these are the animal effects for um, Good Morning, Good Morning. And it's sign 20. <laughs> original sound effects tape compiled by engineer Jeff Emmerich with sounds drawn from EMI's extensive sound effects tape library. The cacophony of animal sounds would be added to the final mix of the song the very next day. To me, the single biggest influence on Sgt. Pepper was the Beach Boys record, Pet Sounds. And I think Brian Wilson was a, was a great genius. Unless I, I think of Pet Sounds in my head, then I think of Sgt. Pepper's, and I think, gosh, you know, that's not... Those two albums aren't very alike at all. Only in that they're very creative. They must have picked up on the creative, the creativity of that sound, not the sound. It's actually very clever, just on, on any level. If you approach it from a writer's point of view, it's very cleverly written. The harmonic structures are very, very clever. Uh, if you approach it from an arranger's point of view, the kind of instruments he's got on there, sort of an oscillator, a harpsichord, um, you know, he's got some crazy stuff on there. I remember doing, I, I combined an organ with, with the guitar. And what a sound, it really worked great. The, we got them so that they were absolutely enhancing each other. It was like, it was like a miracle, a miraculous process. The 28th of March would also see a small but important overdub added to John's being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, the genesis of which came from the Beatles' early television viewing habits and the work of Brian Wilson with the Beach Boys. 
We always loved the Morton Fraser harmonica gang. When we were kids, it was a little TV thing where a little bloke came on and they all pushed him out of the way. But it was those giant big bass, ho, 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 ho. And John used to play harmonica, so we always liked that. sounds there's there's a lot of harmonica bass harmonica uses that it's it's the instruments he uses and the way he places them against each other it's very cleverly done it's a really clever album so we we uh we're inspired by it you know and, and uh, nicked a few ideas Also added to the track on this evening was another organ overdub by John and Paul's guitar solo. The circus-style sound effects that had been assembled on the 20th of February were finally added to Mr Kite the following day, along with George Martin's evocative swirly organ piece. Save for a couple of minor overdubs of organ and glockenspiel the day after that, the sound picture which had begun with the second-hand circus poster was now complete. But the 29th of March 1967 also saw the beginning of another new track, one which would lend itself to the concept of a show put on by the Sgt Pepper band at the start of the LP. George Martin and Ringo recall. John and Paul always wrote a song for Ringo in every album, with a little help my friends proved to be the song. And Paul wrote that song, and wrote it beautifully simply, with just five notes that Ringo had to carry, all within one little phrase of, which was... All in those notes. Terribly simple, terribly effective. The original line was, um, what would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you, would you throw... Uh, would you stand up and throw tomatoes at me or would you throw tomatoes at me? And I, I would not sing that line, tomatoes at me, because uh, I hated the line anyway. And in those days, they used to throw all sorts of stuff at us on stage. <laughs> and uh, I didn't want this to become a habit either. And I, I just hated the line, so I refused to sing that line, tomatoes. So they changed it. Um, would you stand up and walk out on me? Uh, take one. <laughs> Two. What do you play, John? Just play what you play. Okay. One, two, three, four.
takes one and two of With a Little Help from My Friends, at this stage called Bad Finger Boogie, a title which would be abandoned but resurrected in a slightly different form in the name of one of the first bands signed to the Apple label. Featuring Ringo on drums, Paul on piano, George on electric guitar and John on cowbell, George Martin provided the organ intro. Only 10 takes were needed to capture the right feel. It was then up to Ringo, not the world's most naturally confident singer, to add his lead vocal. And he needed a little help from his friends, as engineer Richard Lush recalls. Every time I think of that song, I think of Ringo standing there in number two on the microphone with John and Paul standing next to him, sort of conducting him and egging him on and thumbs up and come on. And this was about six in the morning he was doing, told to do that vocal. And um, we dropped the end in the last, the last friends on the track probably about 15 times, 20 times. I mean, the last note was the, was the problem, uh, mainly because it was high. And uh, I mean, anybody singing a long note, one pitch is quite hard to do. You know, unless you're Pavarotti or something. But um, it suddenly came out of the blue. I mean, nobody, we, we thought we were going home. And uh, and then we suddenly got, oh, I don't know, Ringo's going to do with little help from our friends now. Oh. Oh, really? It took a lot of coaxing from Paul to get me to sing that last note. I just felt it was very high. I always worry about the vocals, you know, and I'm insecure when I do the vocals. I still am, and I was then. And so he would, you know, get me up and uh, we finally got the, the, uh, that last note. Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll head back into Studio 2 as the Beatles add the final flourishes to their new album. Until next time... Cause it's